You're listening to 92.9 FM KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, I'm Arthur Rapkin, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Arthur Rapkin. He's the author of Poison for Rats, Six Kilos That Changed Everything, a memoir. How you doing, Arthur? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. You wrote this with Alec Banks. I did. Yeah. How was the process of putting it together? Um, magical. Mm-hmm. It seemed quite magical. I had actually been writing for many, many years since about 1975. Uh, and I was writing stories, kind of like my greatest hits, you know, mm-hmm. uh, The Adventures of uh, Art Rapkin. And uh, I was babysitting my grandchildren while my kid was traveling. And I got this phone call uh, from Alec Banks, who identified himself as a journalist from Los Angeles. And he said he was doing, he was from Chicago originally, he wanted to do a story on Chicago that wasn't about Al Capone or pizza. And he was looking at martial arts in the Chicago area in the 1960s. It was very interesting. It was a center of martial arts in, in North America. And they had uh, these dojo wars. And he was calling me up because he was looking up uh, dojo wars, came up on his search of martial arts in Chicago. And my name came up more than once. And so he he Googled me and he calls me up and he goes, is this? Arthur Rapkin? I said, yeah. Uh, uh, Rachel Wars and Count Dante in Chicago in the 60s? I said, yeah. And he said, you're still alive. And I I said, yeah. (laughs) And uh, so we talked about I hope so. (laughs) He was so surprised because I guess he had tried you know, trying to find a couple of others that he had found in his research, and they mm-hmm. weren't alive mm-hmm. uh, because it was 1967, say, when that all came down. And uh, these dojo wars, just to give you an, uh, an idea of what they were like, you ever see the like the fight scenes in a Quentin Tarantino movie like Kill Bill? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were like that. Wow. So people died. Uh, people got their eyes torn out. uh but but there were deaths, and so he was interested in um, the death of this guy, James Kansevich, Jim Kansevich, who happened to be one of my senseis, and this guy that was named Count Dante, who was also a sensei of mine, whose original name was John Keon, but he changed it to be Count Dante, which was supposed to be his lineage from Spain. Anyway, um, so we talked about it for about an hour. And then he said something to me that started the relationship. And he said to me, uh, wow, you lived through that, all that. What did you do after that? And I said, well, I went to Cartagena, Colombia, and started smuggling cocaine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was complete silence on his part. And I didn't really realize that at the time. But I really think that he was, like, searching in his professional not just Google, but whatever resources he had. And then my name came up with a number of other things that had nothing to do with martial arts in Chicago and everything to do with cocaine smuggling from Cartagena or from Colombia. And so he 
really thought this was an interesting story. This might sound strange, but Alec Banks is a Jewish kid from the Chicago suburbs. And I was a Jewish kid from the Milwaukee suburbs. And, you know, um, he told me this later, but, you know, all the gangsters that were famous were Italians. The only mention of anybody who was a Jew was like the pencil neck accountant, like Meyer Lansky, behind the scenes, never really a, a, a real gangster, you know, not really a guy to be involved in the front lines of the action. And, and uh, the stories I was telling him was, you know, I went to Columbia and I was 19 years old, maybe 20. It was just a few years after my bar mitzvah. And this was very intriguing for him that a guy, why, what would make me do that? What, how did that all happen? And so through a series of conversations, we began to, and I sent out all the, probably about 500 pages that I had written uh, over the years. And uh, he just really, he saw the story. You know, it's really hard when it's your life to think of it as a great story. Yeah. It's, it's something that when you're talking to somebody like yourself or you're in a bar over a beer and you tell somebody a story, one of the stories that I had, and they go, oh, you got to write a book, um, which is really easy to say. But even though I was writing, um, I didn't understand the cohesiveness that has to come as writing. So I had a bunch of really great stories that uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good writer, but they didn't have any uh, connective. And I think they would have been hard to relate to. But Alec and the producer, Roger, the publisher, Gastman, uh, <laughs> who was the third Jew in this, uh, <laughs> they seemed to really be interested in something that I wasn't interested in, like me. Right. And so the process was uh, COVID came after I, right after I was diagnosed with a non-curable illness that's supposed to um, end up with me being in a wheelchair. I got that diagnosis, and then I really was down. And uh, at the same time, my significant other and I split up, and she moved out. And then COVID came. And this is when this whole thing happened with the phone call and Alec. Uh, and I really think that um, I've done other types of therapy in my life. But uh, this was the most therapeutic thing because besides my greatest hits and things that most people may not relate to, extraordinary uh, experiences, Alec brought me down to things that you know I never really, really took a look at or was uncomfortable to be walking around your house by yourself with groceries coming in by delivery and wearing gloves to get your mail and then, you know, uh, listen, I want to know more about your relationship with your father and his death. Uh, so I don't want you to look back from where you are now uh, at 73, I think I was at the time or two. I want you to go back in your mind's eye into exactly who you were then and what the experience was and write that. And, you know, th that wasn't like jumping up and down with Don Perignon after making it through Miami customs. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, wow, that's that's so cool that it happened during COVID because COVID just like spun us all out of sorts. It was I was even just thinking um, kind of recently how hard it, I was like, wow, COVID was hard on me. I didn't realize because you're just in survival mode. And and I and I gained a lot of weight because what did I do? I drank a ton of wine and I ate a bunch of cheese and I didn't care about anything. And then all of a sudden we're starting to get out of COVID and I'm like a balloon blimp, you know? And Sounds like you were in Italy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I was yeah, I was just uh here and it was just and i realized oh and i and i my cholesterol went through the roof i had to get heart medication the the, the and so i'm just sitting there going i got to get off this heart medication like i'm no i don't want to do this anymore and that's when i just changed everything i'm like exercising you know cut the booze no more processed foods in the house and so um you know i'm 40 pounds lighter now and i'm still trying to get even further down and it's just like but, it, but, but I didn't mean to bring it all back to me, but this, the survival oh, right. mechanisms we did during COVID, what what a, what a cool survival mechanism. And then you get a, you get a book out of it at the end. It's you, it's what, what a fantastic approach you had. It was a, an amazing achievement. And I owe it all really to Alec and his insights about, you know, he told me uh, he's been waiting his whole life for a story like this. And he was a, you know, a journalist who like, you know, when Kobe Bryant went down, uh, he, he had to write an article for several of his client periodicals. And that was the kind of writing that he did. And he did some writing for uh, Roger Gassman with his company. Uh, and Roger's company really produced a lot of books about graffiti. And so Alec would uh, write the stories about the graffiti artists and so forth. But he was looking for really, um, I guess, a significant story as a writer that he could really sink his teeth into. And the funny thing is, uh, he would finish sentences for me. I mean, we we really, the mind meld. It was more than just working on a project. It was as if um, you were working on a project with collaborating with one of your he, he reminded me of one of my sons i have three sons he reminded me of being a son and also a best friend you know he got to know me better than any other human being on the planet uh, did you read it all any of it i what i do for these interviews is i read a little bit of it and then um i stop because i want to have the real conversation and kind of be clueless about it and then i'll read it after well, you know, there's some stuff in there that uh, isn't my greatest achievements, nor would it be my greatest hits. And, you know, and so when you get down to the real nitty gritty uh, in all the facets of who you are as a human being, it was a completely different experience than, uh, you know, in a bar, someone, I told them some story and they go, oh, you got to write a book. Yeah. And well, and that, and those are, those are the threads that bring together the humanity of it. Cause I, I feel like that's when it's when we've, you know, I've, I've written about myself as well, where it's just like even the shameful stuff and, and it just, it felt, I just was like, Oh man, as you know, everyone's not going to want to talk to me anymore. And, and then all of a sudden people are like, Oh no, I felt that way too. I could just never say it. I can never. And it's, and then it's wow. and it's kind of an opening where it's like, oh wow, you know, there there's beauty to 
um it's not it's not beauty but i think it's uh maybe it's more like just camaraderie to the darkness in our souls that people are like hey i've i get that because i felt that and it's just i can't believe you said it <laughs> you know it's very therapeutic yeah you know very different than being in a psychiatrist's office and when it hit 50 minutes you could have been just tapping into some serious feelings and him going, uh, well, time's up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going to re-up your volume. <laughs> re-up your <laughs> and, and don't go near any bridges. <laughs> this yeah, has been so a good it, session. It was, uh, don't, don't buy rope. <laughs> if nothing else happens, uh, producing this book uh, really was a tremendous achievement for me yeah and, and it's a great book yeah it's and the i'm die, i can't wait to really dive into the whole thing and i just want to ask you about this stuff first so you were in prison i was right bring me through that you so this is this is after this is when you was this what the because i read about the first bust with cocaine was that the first bust was that related no, to that there was no first bust oh okay there was only uh me being taken off of a plane through trickery. Uh, I was on a plane from, first off, just to kind of be completely transparent about the whole thing. You know, we wrote this book from my childhood up through my life and then decided that a kid's childhood may not be that interesting. So let's just take it from the torture and interrogation and open the book with that so people would be grabbed with oh curiosity and mystique and then flash back through yeah. your life which uh really might be a great thing for a tv series too so um we i was in a mexican prison and i had uh been taken off a plane that was flying from bogota to los angeles stopping in mexico city and uh, the stop in mexico city let passengers off and then other passengers got on but before other passengers got on, a couple of guys got on the plane that said they were with Braniff Airlines and that the ticket I bought, I still owed like $38 or something. Uh, and when I tried to, I was in 3A up in first class. And when I tried to give them the cash, they said, no, you got to go to the ticket counter. So I got off the plane and went to the ticket counter. Uh, and on the way to the ticket counter, you have to go through customs and when I went through customs, I didn't even have a bag, really. Uh, but they derailed me down a hallway. And then the next thing you know, I was being interrogated in a room. And they brought in another guy who they stuck a Bowie knife through his suitcase and pulled it out. And all white powder came out. Um, and, you know, their claim was that I was the, the head guy and he was the mule and they wanted me to sign like a seven page confession in Spanish. Uh, and I didn't sign it. So I was in prison basically uh, waiting to go to trial. And I had no drugs on me. I never signed a confession. And the guy who had the drugs, he, he didn't sign any accusatory thing toward me. And they kept me there. Uh, and it was about a year. And, uh, I didn't think I was getting out, but during that time in prison, it was very interesting because there was all kinds of characters in prison. Uh, and it, in prison is where I really discovered 
more of who I was. Uh, I'm not saying that I didn't deserve to be in prison, but by all laws of the Mexican constitution, I had no drugs, I signed no confession, no matter how much duress and interrogation, which really is a lot of torture. I mean, they, they electrocute you, they uh, pour water on you while they're electrocuting you, they cut parts of your body off. If you're a woman, uh, you know, they'll have eight, 10 federalities raping you over a period of seven or eight days. You will sign a confession. Out of 636 Americans incarcerated, 636 North Americans, including Canadians, four people didn't sign confessions, and I was one of those four. So uh, we were actually, several of us prisoners, you know, you go through different things in prison, but one thing uh, was everything was gone. I had a life outside prison that was very successful. I had a lot of things going on. I had a son, I had a wife. Everything was pulled away and there I was. And I began to really do a little prayer and meditation. And then we started uh, sneaking out articles that we wrote because uh, we found out through our own, we had a lot of time on our hands, that President Nixon had paid President Luis Encheverria of Mexico $25 million in a, it was called Operation Cooperation in the early 70s to stop all heroin trafficking. And what they did to provide results was they grabbed any Americans they saw. Like if you were traveling in 1970, 1971 through 76, if you were traveling in Mexico, what were the chances if they stopped you that you might have had a joint, you might have had a little pot in your shoe or pocket, you had a good looking girlfriend, you had no drugs, but they had one. And they just said, oh, this is yours. And they arrested all these Americans and then they tortured them into signing confessions. And they sent the statistics back saying, well, we got 636 and, and 630, you know, two signed confessions. Hmm. And so Nixon, this was actual headlines when he was rerunning for president against Jimmy Carter. Uh, and we thought Jimmy Carter is a human rights activist. You know, and besides us starting to do this, other kids, there was a scam going on in the prison. This is what they did. The United States embassy official would contact the parents, let's say that they lived in uh, Sacramento, uh, and they would say, You're, you know, your son or your daughter is in trouble in Mexico. And they go, really? Oh, oh, and they'd say, well, you know, can you help them? Well, we really can only recommend a legitimate Mexican attorney. Uh and he says that, you know, you need to come down and the retainers, the 10,000 or 20,000. In my case, the retainer was 25,000. And um, we'll see what we can do. And so the parents, even if they didn't have the money, would remortgage their home or whatever. Then they call their congressman or senator if they had that thought or if they had to connect. And they would let them know. So these congressmen and senators they heard enough about this over a period of maybe say four or five years that um, they, they actually came down. There was a guy named uh, Stark. I think Peter Stark. I think he was a, either a congressman or Senator from California. He came down. So they were reporting back to the state department saying that this is what's going on right over the border. This isn't the middle East. Mm -hmm. This is 18 miles South of San Diego 
uh, we have children that are actually, and these were kids. Some of them were 18, 19, 20, 21, traveling around in the summer, uh, being tortured, uh, significant torture. Women having, you know, parts of their body cut off, earrings torn out until they signed the confessions. Um, so I started funding with a couple of other people ads, actually full page ads, open letter to the American people, you know, human rights violations in Mexico. And we were asking for, please look into it. And they actually sent down the State Department representative. And he looked at like 286 cases and found uh, what they considered to be substantial evidence in about 85 cases uh, of human rights violations. And then, and then 60 Minutes showed up at the prison. And 60 Minutes showed up, and then I got pulled out of my cell, and the Attorney General of Mexico walked with his arm around me in the courtyard saying that 60 Minutos is coming. Um, and they wanted me to be a representative for the American prisoners. Because a lot of the guys were really screwed up they weren't mature and they'd be screaming about the, the, you know, the food, the food's not good. It's rat meat. And, and that they're not articulate, let's just say. So me and another guy, we were on 60 minutes with the attorney general of Mexico. And then the president of Mexico was on as well, but not in the room with us. He was on wherever he was. Uh, and we talked about how this was in, you know, uh, all directed by President Nixon and President Luis Echeverria. Now, Lopez Portillo was the new president of Mexico, and he didn't want this kind of reputation because we had done so much kind of getting the news out that they were actually getting hurt with tourists. They started saying, don't travel to Mexico, don't travel to Mexico. Um, this is, say, 1975, 1976. Uh, Travel agencies recommended not traveling to Mexico. The Mexican pesos started to get devaluated because we really were bringing this. See, and who was doing the opposite side? The Mexicans were more of the middlemen who benefited, but it was the DEA who really were getting statistics so that their offices would get more money, you know, budgets, everything. Wow. So all this hmm. stuff we brought to light. And they just figured, we got to get rid of these guys. Then we did a hunger strike. We weren't going to eat till we got back to the United States. So they finally brought my case to court. And when I went to court, they um, they released me as absuelto, which means innocent. And a uh, formal apology by the Mexican government. And when they were giving me my things in the admin office, whatever I had left that they were holding, the phone rang in back of the desk and the guy answered the phone and he said it's for you i'm like it's for me i didn't even think that it was all real that i was getting out i had gone to trial several times and every time they took me up to the trial the judge was replaced and so they had to set it back for eight weeks or 12 weeks so anyway i pick up the phone and it's the attorney general um he said oh i heard the good news huh. well it was within minutes that he had heard the good news uh, but because I didn't really complain about my own case, I think it, it, he looked into my case. You know, I didn't really, 
I didn't get on 60 Minutes and start ranting about I was innocent. I had no drugs. I was just talking about what was going on there. Um, and anyway, I got out. And uh, I had made a pact with myself. If I ever got out alive, because every day you'd wake up in this prison, somebody was dead. Somebody was found with a rope around their neck and the other end of the rope tied to the base of their toilet. And you had to figure out, well, how did he hang himself? It was just a, you know, a signal. Uh, and other guys got stabbed because they didn't put the plywood over their bodies when they went to bed at night. You had a plywood board, the length of your body that you had to buy, and then you put your blanket over that. And if someone came in in the middle of the night to stab you, they stabbed the plywood board. Wow. So there's a, a lot of people that died, and I made up my mind in there that if I ever got out, um, I was going to do something with my life more meaningful of service. And I did. I actually did. I didn't get out and and do it all right away, but yeah. But well, I, I did. what was it like when I when you when you get out and you finally realize like you're free after all of that, that that's, that's almost has to be as much culture shock as when you were duped into getting off that plane. Yeah. It was a tremendous culture shock. While I was in there, I had been indicted by the grand jury in the United States and they wanted to extradite me, but I managed to talk the Mexicans into, um, putting my file away for 24 hours in a desk drawer before they, notified the American authorities that I was out. And I went to the airport and I flew to Toronto. Uh, and I'll never forget waking up in the morning in a Toronto hotel room and almost getting killed by just stepping off the curb to cross the street. To, <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you're not used to, you're not used to it for a year. You didn't have to do anything like that. All of a sudden, you get all this traffic. You don't know. Yeah, it was culture shock. And also, uh, I wasn't doing drugs. And when I got out in 1976 in Canada, uh, there was a lot of people who just had finished college, was starting their career as a financial advisor or a young attorney or, or an accountant or whatever. They had a BMW and they'd stay up doing cocaine till, you know, all hours of the night. Uh, and that was really, it was really odd to be completely, you know, clean. Uh, and listening to these conversations that as, as the hours moved on, got more ridiculous. Yeah. And also the fact that what I had lived through and what I have seen in that prison and experience uh, I just couldn't engage in a conversation about my window and somebody's window not working in their BMW and how pissed they were. It did. It, it, it like it, it brings the immediacy of living, <laughs> living through that. That it's like, yeah. How, how do you how do you connect with other people? Are there other people that you find? when you're out that have been, was there, was there anyone that also got out that had kind of been through the same thing as you? Cause that's, that's like being at war in high combat situation. So how yeah. do you relate to anybody? And, and, that's right. Yeah. 
you hit that on the head. I had never was in the war, uh, and so I don't know. But I, I've always thought of it the way you just described it, because you share. Well, first off, nobody else got out. A year later, everybody got out. There was something called a prisoner exchange program that had started with everything we did. And it was supposed to be implemented, but it took, I think, nine more months. I was watching it on TV um, when it happened and, and saw everybody deplaning. But so I, I didn't get to experience that at the time. But um, there was nobody to relate it with. And I used to like wake up in the middle of the night sweating. And uh, the gal that I was with at the time living with, she would say, uh, and I was living under a, a fictitious name because I was wanted in the United States. But as long as they didn't serve me, basically, and couldn't find me, I wasn't really, um, I don't know what you call it, but, uh, you know, I, I knew I was wanted. Uh, and she would say to me, you're not who you say you are. My name was Michelle Desjardins in Canada. And uh, I had documentation and identification and She'd say, you're not who you say you are. I don't know what you've been through, but I know you're. there's something else going on. It's kind of interesting to wake up, you know, screaming or yeah. sweating. Or, so, I, it was weird. Yeah. What? So what was what? What did the United States? What were what did they want to try you for? If you were presumed innocent in Mexico and everything, it, it, it's. It almost, you know, it's like, did you know that they would, that they were going to be after you still as a wanted man? Or did you just kind of guess that and go, I better get out of here? Uh, good question. That's a good question. Because while I was innocent in Mexico, according to Mexican law, it was the DEA and IRS intelligence division who had gotten me put in there. That's them who knew I was on that airplane because they were on the airplane. They followed me all the way down there. I had a, at the time, it was about a five-year career uh, in the cocaine smuggling business. And I was very successful. Um, and, uh, you know, my five years was like 20 to 25 years old, maybe 26. So, the, you know, when you're 24, 23 years old, and you're making a million and a half dollars a year in cash, uh, and you have a Rolls Royce and an XJ12 Jaguar and four houses and a plane and some horses, uh, you can't help but have heat. I thought being a legend in my own mind, I was going to outsmart these guys all the time. And I did a good job. Uh, I was very good at it. But... When you do something that long and you have so many people that are adversaries, meaning it would be like in football, the analogy would be if you were the only guy on one team and you had to get to the goalpost on the other side and there was like 15 people trying to stop you. Uh, I did that for a number of years. But eventually, like all criminal enterprises, which I found out in Mexico, when I was in with real criminals, uh, because I was really, I believe that was a mastermind because I, you know, I got in a way with doing what I did so well. And I supported a lot of people 
had a big organization and uh, was far from innocent. Uh, but I found out in Mexico that I wasn't really a criminal. You, you know, real criminals don't mind going to jail for several years, and then they get out and they're criminals. I mean, if you're in the business and you have a bad day, it can mean your freedom or your life. And I hadn't experienced anything except picking up checks at restaurants from me and my friends and driving around and being cool. Uh, at a time when you have to understand, Tony, and for people listening, you know, cocaine smuggling was, was uh, I brought back cocaine. No one knew what it was. Nobody knew what it was. There was nobody who would ruin their marriage or ruin their lives or ruin their health. Or, there was none of that. I went from being in Golden Gate Park where someone next to you nudged you and opened their hand and whatever was in it, you took some. A few capsules, a couple tablets, LSD, cannabinol, whatever. Uh, and nobody asked for money. So when I went to South America, I just wanted to hack my way through the jungles. I wanted to be like Bluebeard and Blackbeard, Cartagena, home of the pirates. That's what I wanted. Uh, I didn't want to be like the rest of my family or kids that I grew up with. I wanted to be a soldier of fortune. So I was really naive. It wasn't like I, I really was. Um, I wasn't like that, but I, I did become much more knowledgeable and sophisticated as the years went on uh, at a time when, you know, the DEA just started in about 68 or 69. Before that, they were the alcohol and firearms or something. There was no DEA. And the DEA was made up of people who were hired through ad classified advertising. So the government put ads in the paper. I, like there was an agent that when I did turn myself in eventually in the United States to go to trial, there was an agent. I said, what would you do before you were a DEA agent? And he said, I was an IBM typewriter repairman. Hmm. So if you can think for a minute about, well, if you're an adventurous and a um, a person who's willing to a lot of risk, I was willing my, not just for this, but a lot of things I did in my life were were risky, and I was willing to to do that for the adventure and for the the game of getting over. When you have somebody who got a salaried position and he's you know when a typewriter goes bad in someone's office and they call up and the service guy comes and repairs it and now he's a DEA agent with a gun and a badge it's a different mentality there's no way they have to have time and manpower and funding and if you just do it long enough I mean you, you know that's what happened so it was um it was very interesting. I didn't know anything about those things. It's just who I was. So when I went down there and somebody offered me a sniff of this stuff, uh, and then it was great to go to the bathroom and have coffee. I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, I said, if you buy this here for $6, when you take it back to the United States, it'll be worth about $60. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I'd never heard of anything like that. Uh, I was a guy that was in martial arts. I had a karate school. Um, I played in a band. I mean, I never saw that kind of money. So I picked some up and I took some back. And sure enough, he was right. And then I took that money and went back down and 
came back and took that money and went back down. I went down there with $2,000 in my pocket. Uh, and then I came back. I think I had, I don't know, maybe six or 7,000. I went down there with that. I came back. I'll never forget. I counted out like 67,000 on my kitchen table over about 12 weeks of giving half of it away. Then I took the 67,000 and went back. Uh, it, that's just the way it was. And when I landed in Miami, they weren't even looking for cocaine from Colombia. You didn't even huh. need a passport to go to Colombia. Wow. All you had to do was show up your, with your driver's license at the counter in Miami and buy a ticket. So when you came back from Colombia, they weren't looking for anything. It wasn't like you were coming back from, say, Iran or, I don't know, Turkey, where they were looking for hash or heroin. They weren't looking for anything. Huh. And I had a pretty good cover. I had a briefcase that I had bought at a department store for like 30 bucks. And I had stenciled the letters S, uh, S-N-I, S-Y-I, S-N-I, S-Y-I, I think. Anyway, syndicated News International, and I had gone to a printer and gotten a card printed that kind of resembled a Wisconsin driver's license because that's what I showed him because it had like some background stuff in it. And it looked very official. And so it said Syndicated News International, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Toronto. Uh, and when I got to customs and I flipped open, no, I only had a carry-on bag. So I'd flip open my my briefcase that said syndicated news international and the first thing you'd see would be my press pass clipped to the back row of the suitcase uh and i went so frequently that the customs guys used to be like hey art you might be in line waiting <laughs> yeah you know oh yeah you're back you went to columbia again yeah you know they always send the young guys with no families and travel all the time and they didn't ever search my bag Wow. So it was like, it was silly. It was just uh, later, it got much more sophisticated. And I used to have seniors on cruises. So there'd be like a, a 10 day or 14 day cruise from Fort Everglades. And it would go through the Caribbean and all the little stops. And then it would go to Cartagena, Colombia, which was the stop on the tip of Colombia. And I had a tour guide under my employment. So Roberto would, you know, he had the picture of the people. And when they got off the boat, he'd go, oh, take this bus. And they'd know because I told them when somebody says that to you, you get on that bus uh, and they'd get on that bus. And somewhere along the way with like 40 people on that bus, they'd go to some store and then the senior grandma would go, oh, I'm looking for something for my grandchild. Roberto would say, how about that nice poncho up on the wall? And there'd be 20 people going, that's nice, that's nice. And the shopkeeper would take the poncho down off the wall and then below the counter, he would package it and hand it to the person to get back onto the bus with it. And nobody knew that the, the package that he handed her was really done the day before. And it had all cocaine wrapped in it in hermetically sealed packaging. So nobody on the bus really, you know, looked at the thing it was just the package was in there and then the serapi or the bunch then when you got back on the cruise ship they never searched anybody they didn't okay you, you get you were off the cruise ship for four hours you went to the monastery you went to some shops you went to the diamond or emerald store uh they didn't search 60 year old 70 year old people i had a nun who actually was a, a nun i had her she had one short leg so she went up and down 
And then we dressed another guy as a priest. We went to like a Halloween costume shop, got the priest outfit. He was with her, uh, that kind of stuff. Wow. So it was fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It's, and, you know, until, until it wasn't uh, fun. And then I, you know, I really realized this, this isn't for me. Because I met other guys that were in there. Uh, Richie Messina, who, who was found in the trunk of a car at the Miami airport. Richie was in there and he had five bullet holes in him, scars, because he was robbing the Bronx Zoo. Huh. And uh, his partner had already been cooperating with the police. So when they were robbing the zoo, they were waiting for him. And they shot Richie five times, Italian guy from the Bronx. Uh, and I said to Richie, you know, he's, he had been in jail more than he had been out as an adult since 16 years old. I said, Richie, you know, have you ever considered that you don't do too well in this business? And he said, wait, what do you want me to do? Open a flower store. So that's funny. So <laughs> when when do you go back? When do you go back to the United States? And were you anticipating that you were uh, going to be charged and possibly do more time? Yeah, that's a whole story. I, I went back because I had a son and mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to be part of my son's life. You know, after living in Canada under a fictitious name for a year, I didn't, I just couldn't imagine this, you know, nobody knew who I was and I didn't have anybody. And uh, I wanted to be in my son's life. And so I finally decided that uh, if I go back, I'm going to be facing the charges were racketeering, cocaine smuggling, and, and and tax evasion. And my attorney at the time uh, told me that if, if I, he could arrange it, that I would cooperate with the State Department through the DEA. That uh, he thinks that he, they could, they would recommend, they would drop the charges and recommend. Uh, probation, but the most I'd probably serve is two years for tax evasion if he, if he could get that deal. Um, and I thought about it and thought about it, and then I decided, you know, I'm going to do that. And so um, I made that deal and did come back and went to trial. And actually, the prosecution stayed mute when the judge asked what they recommended. They dropped the racketeering, they dropped the cocaine smuggling, and they found, I had to plead no content, uh, guilty, I think, to the tax. Oh, it was failure to file with intent to evade. It was like the, the lowest felony they could possibly give you. And I think the reason for that was, you know, um, as I had met different people along the way, including the prosecutor and uh, who made the deal in Canada, he came up. Uh, I wasn't, you know, the kind of criminal to be feared. I was like, I was a good guy. I mean, I was a nice guy who got involved in this stuff. I did well, paid my dues because my attorney would tell these guys, you know, he knew all of them, you know, what I went through in Mexico because he had visited me there in the cells and the just the madness, uh, the horror. And uh, nobody... I mean, I had lost my wife, decided she didn't want to be with me anymore. She had enough and of the gangster life. So they just felt like, okay, you know, I, I'm ponying up. 
and they didn't catch me. I showed up on my own. Uh, and then I did work for several, about three years, I think, with the DEA, uh, which is, you know, I promised them I'd give them the biggest bus they ever had in Milwaukee. Uh, and what I did was I arranged to get a lab in Columbia, the lab, which was unheard of. And all the other DEA officers thought they were crazy to believe the in confidential informant was going to give them a lab in Columbia. But I had flown to Columbia under a fic my name on my alias. And I went to the people I was doing business with in Columbia before I went to prison. And I said, Hey, I'm working for the DEA now. And, you know, I could have, could have been the end of me right there, but instead, <laughs> cause yeah, you believe in stuff like being born under a wandering star. Wait, what's the definition of that? You know, you're just lucky. Oh yeah. Um that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. Synchronicity, maybe. I don't right time, right place. Yeah. Dumb luck. Yeah. And uh so because I had such a great relationship with this guy. Now remember, this was the years prior to cartels. Yeah. Uh prior to cartels. So when I was doing a million and a half a year, I was a big deal. And if you were a Colombian with cocaine and some guy was, you know, coming down and buying from you three times a year, you didn't have to leave your house. That's a big deal. That's a good relationship where nobody's doing anything. That It's all done by your word. Your word is your bond. So this guy said to me, okay, we'll give him a lab. And he, you know, they move these labs anyway every three or four months. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so they set it up where, you know, there was a tremendous, I forget how many kilos were busted, but it was probably all made out of like 10 kilos. And then they busted 600 or 800 or 1,000 that were really the, the most terrible quality of cocaine. But of course, when it hit Time Magazine, it was the biggest bust that it was the United States and the Colombian government working together. And, and so I became, uh, I became, became uh, well thought of in the DEA because the Milwaukee office's funding went way up. You know, mm -hmm. usually as San Diego, Miami, New York, funding's up in those offices. Milwaukee, what did they got? And that was really, you know, I realized that early on. That, that was really their, their tipping point was if you could bring them stuff that increased <laughs> their funding, uh, the head of the office was happy, which meant all the agents were happy. And so I would make these things up. I funded them. I took them to the Mexico-San Ysidro border and said, we're going to get this big operation where they're coming over with campers and the camper tops are all false tops and there's all marijuana. And so they flew me out there with this agent. Uh, and when we got out there, the San Diego DEA thought he was an idiot. Are you kidding? You're going to sit, you know, there's like 14 lanes going back two miles on a Saturday uh, you're going to pick out the truck that, yeah, they were laughing at him. Like, what an idiot bringing his confidential informant. And sure, it was my fucking truck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was my load. I had gone down there and worked with the guy to put it all together. And so I'm giving it up. Why am I giving it up? Because I made a deal and I'm coming through with my end of it. I wasn't going to give them people that they wanted. First mm -hmm. off, there was only one other person that was really at my level. And he was a person who helped me get settled in Canada. 
uh, and I live with him and his wife and his newborn kid, and I wasn't about to give him up, even though they wanted him. So I gave them stuff that they didn't, you know, I said, listen, you know, they're not searching when tourists get back on the boats and these Caribbean cruises. And they changed all that because of, uh, you know, they had me going like on a, around the country talking to DEA offices and stuff. They call me the, the professor. Uh, and so I came through, I, I came through with it and I never turned in. There was one guy that I actually put in a bad situation because he had, he had, he had threatened me with the scissors and to attack me. And he threatened to put my girlfriend in prison because uh, of an operation that went bad in Colombia, and she was already on probation and he was going to notify the probation officer that she had left the state. And so anyway, it was just, he had it coming. Yeah. Not that I feel good about it, but um, I did set him up with a DEA agent who was supposed to be a chemist. Uh, and and the guy went in. But once he was in, I wrote letters saying that, you know, how the whole thing was constructed. And he, you know, he was really brought in. He was sucked in. But when he got sucked in, he brought in the Milwaukee Brewers. There was the manager and a star pitcher and all kinds of people in the hotel waiting for their stuff that had given him money. Cause it was like a, a $500,000 buy. Yeah. And when the cops came in and raided it all, uh, and people were running out of the hotel, they got one of the managers of the brewers. They got one of the pitchers. It just so, also happened to be there in the bar. Uh, had nothing to do with anything, but those were his customers that all had, he said, hey, I got this deal and I can get this stuff. And so they were all pitching in like 25 and they got like 300,000 in cash. Wow. Uh, and jewelry and some titles to property. That was the only one that, that really I had to do. That was just a bad situation and uh, not something that I, I felt good about. You're, I, I don't know if it's luck because it, it could be partially luck, but I feel like, um, tell me if I'm wrong, that you, that you, that you navigate well that, and you also like you, you keep your word and you're, you, you kind of have a strong character, even though, you know, you're smuggling cocaine and all this, there, there's a moral code that you have that you would not cross. And I, and people probably felt that. So then you had the attraction of things going your way. What do, what do you think of that um, from an unlicensed uh, dude who's just sitting here looking at you? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I, I didn't, I think you're absolutely right. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was, I was learning the game along the way, but I grew up, I grew up with um, street people. Like I got kicked out of school at an early age because I was special needs and there were no such thing as special needs to time. And so who did I hang out with when other kids were in school? I used to go to the local big boy restaurant and there were siding guys. And these siding guys, you know, I was 16 in 10th grade, these siding guys were 34, 44. Uh, they went to people's houses. They pretended to be with Life magazine. They're doing a layout uh, on, on before and after, and they're choosing this house. And, you know, I was along because they'd say, come on, Wardy, come on. 
And so I saw guys that were, you know, salesmen, the stuff that isn't around anymore. These guys had no salary. So they made it happen. And I hung around with, there was a guy named uh, Frank Picciolo who owned the Italian restaurant. And he, it was of course heavily rumored that he was involved and connected uh, with organized crime, which, you know, I really don't know if he was, but I know he was connected to the police department because they ate for free in his restaurant. And Frank would come and say, yes, and uh, Artie, hey, you want to rob a, there's a pharmaceutical warehouse uh, and the cop on the beat isn't going to answer the when the alarm goes off for 30 minutes. It's going to take his time. Uh, and there's a guy named Tommy from New York who knows how to get in. I'd like you to go too. make sure that uh, Tommy doesn't run off with the stuff. And okay, Frank, you know, so, uh, you know, it was those types of people that instead of, I don't know, my mother would say to me, I don't know what's wrong with you. Why don't you be like your cousin, Larry? Larry is now the manager of the appliance department at Sears and Robach. Be like, ma, Larry's 36. I'm 16. Number one, number two, uh, I have no interest in being in the appliance department of Sears and Roebuck, you know. So I, I did, before I ever got into the, before I ever got into cocaine smuggling, uh, you know, I was growing up amongst these people who were salesmen, hustlers, con guys, um, arm robbers, street thugs, and they were all good. Like if yeah. they said they're going to do this, you did it. That was yeah. it. There was no contract. And then they had to have a lawyer interpret it when it went bad. And then you have to, no, you either did it uh, and you grew and expanded your role in the community that was, uh, or nobody would talk to you again or, you know, so yeah, you hit it on the head that that's really what, you know, I wanted to be was a, I remember one of the siding men, when he took me out with him and he was from Life magazine and they were doing a shoot of the house and stuff. And he got the deal. And afterwards, we went back to the big boy restaurant. It was it was like noon. We had left the big boy restaurant at like 930 in the morning. And he said to me, you know, successful guys, Artie, successful guys are done by noon. <laughs> and my father worked as a manager of a furniture store and he would worked from that store opened at eight at 9 a.m and it closed at 9 p.m and he took a bus home and i would walk to the bus stop and meet my father and walk home with my father and i didn't want to be nothing like that the, you know for the listeners if you want to hear the rest of the story get it check out the book it's called poison for rats Six Kilos That Changed Everything, a memoir. And it's by Dr. Arthur Rapkin, Rapkin and Alec Banks. Arthur, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it.
it wacky dust It's from a hot cornet It gives your feet a feeling so breezy And oh, it's so easy to get They call it wacky dust It brings a dancing jazz And when it starts, then only a sap will refuse To big apple or shag I don't know just why it gets you so high Putting a buzz in your heart You'll do a marathon, you'll wanna go on Kicking the seal in the pot, they call it wacky dust It's something you can't trust And in the end the rhythm will stop When it does, then you'll drop From happy wacky dust You're listening to 92.9 FM KPCR LP Santa Cruz.
Stay clean.